Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. On June 23rd, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, and in a 6-3 decision held that New York's law requiring demonstration of proper cause before an individual could qualify for a license to carry a concealed gun violates the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. This is the first landmark Second Amendment case since the court decided District of Columbia v. Heller in 2008. In that case, the court held that the Second Amendment provides for an individual right to possess a handgun for self-defense in one's home. The court issued Bruin this new landmark decision less than six weeks after a gunman killed 10 Black people in a Buffalo supermarket and less than four weeks after 21 people, 19 children, and two teachers were shot to death at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. And on June 25th, President Joe Biden signed into law the first major federal gun safety legislation, which would, among other things, require tougher background checks for gun buyers under the age of 21 and provide more funding for mental health resources. On tonight's show, we're gonna talk about the Bruin decision and the state of gun control reform in the United States. We have joining us for this decision, Joseph Bloker, the Lanty L. Smith Professor of Law at Duke School University, at Duke University School of Law, and the faculty co-director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. And also Andrew Willinger, the new executive director for the Duke Center of Firearms Law. So thank you both for joining us this evening. We know you've been very busy during this time and we, is, we appreciate you taking time to be with us. Thank you so much for having us, April. This is, I think without exaggeration, the biggest week for gun rights and regulation in, frankly, in memory. It's been a whirlwind uh, and there's a lot, lot, lot to talk about. So looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. So before we get into Bruin and talk about the state of gun reform. So at Duke University School of Law, you've got the Duke Center for Firearms Law. I'd like for both of you to talk a little bit about what you do in the center and why you thought it was important to have a center that focuses on this area of the law. And Joseph, let's let's start with you. Actually, I'll, 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 let, um, okay. I'll let Andrew to speak first because he's really getting his feet wet. Um, Andrew started as the executive director. As you say, he's new to the job. He started one hour before this Bruin decision came down uh, and so may have some real thoughts about the, the past and the future of the center. So but when I, I, Andrew, if you go first, then I'll, I'll, uh, I'd be happy to follow up. Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Joseph. And, and thanks, April and, and Irv for having us on today. Um, so the Duke Center for Firearms Law was launched in 2019, and it's the only center uh, dedicated specifically to Second Amendment study housed within a law school. Um, the center has two faculty co-directors, uh, Joseph and also uh, Daryl Miller, who is a professor at Duke as well. Um, and the center has two, really two primary missions. Um, first, 
to help support and build the scholarly field of firearms law and encourage the, um, the field as a, as a field of scholarly inquiry. Um, and second, to serve as a balanced and reliable resource on firearms law for scholars, judges, lawyers, and other interested parties. Um, and the center uh, tries to further those missions in a few ways, um, including disseminating and supporting Second Amendment scholarship. Uh, we organize and host workshops, conferences, symposia on Second Amendment issues. Um, and the center also maintains and houses on its website uh, an online repository of historical gun laws. Um, and that's the largest single source freely accessible uh, resource for, uh, for finding historical gun laws um, throughout Anglo-American history. I, I just add on to that, that, um, you know, the resources that we provide, a lot of them are publicly available, certainly the website, you can follow us on Twitter, um, the website is firearmslaw.duke.edu, I think our Twitter handle is at Duke Firearms, um, so we do a lot of coverage of cases that are coming down, developments in firearms law and in firearms law scholarship, and to answer your question, April, about what it was that led us to start this center, it's three years ago now, um, we were really just struck at what a significant role scholarship has played in Second Amendment jurisprudence. So you mentioned earlier the, the Supreme Court's 2008 decision in District of Columbia versus Heller. If you go back and look at the majority opinion there for Justice Scalia, he cites more scholarship and secondary sources than he does cases and constitutional provisions and statutes. So really it seems like scholarship played a big role in the transformation of the Second Amendment there. And again, we saw last week in Justice Thomas's majority opinion in Bruin, a lot of citations to scholarship, including a book chapter in a book that we're putting together. Um, so it, it's really important that that scholarship be good and reliable. And I guess the last thing I would say uh, just about what the center is not, uh, we're, not a, we're not a legal clinic, though we don't do legal services. We don't take positions advocating for or against particular pieces of legislation or, um, you know, or, or, or nor do we file briefs on behalf of the center. Like we're really trying to focus on the, the sort of scholarship side of things and, and leave the advocacy to, uh, to others. All right, thank you for that. And thank you for all the, the work that you're doing. Um, in the development and promotion and amplification of the scholarship. And as you noted, both the Heller decision and the McDonald decision, and of course, uh, this most recent decision, very heavy on history and scholarship. Um, so before we get into Bruin, can you, um, both of you kind of take us back to DC v. Heller and kind of talk about the watershed moment that that case created and the significance of this particular case a decade, you know, more than a decade after that decision, where was the gap? And, um, and then we'll go from there. Sure. I can speak to the Heller decision because this is one for which I was literally there uh, in that, and in the interest of full disclosure, I should say, as a very junior associate, uh, actually helped brief that case for the District of Columbia, uh, who ended up losing the case. So I'm, I'm 0-1 uh, in Second Amendment litigation uh, thus far. The, so the question before the court in Heller um, was, well, what was for decades sort of the central question for the Second Amendment, which is, is the right limited to people and arms and activities that have some connection to the organized militia, which today we might think of as maybe the National Guard or some, some kind of, you know, vestige of that. And you know, people who point to that interpretation point to the first phrase in the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia being necessary to secure a free state, et cetera. That's one view. 
The alternative view, and the one that the court ended up adopting in a five to four decision authored by Justice Scalia, is that the right actually, the right to keep and bear arms, that is, actually extends to an individual right to keep and bear arms for certain private purposes like self-defense in the home. Now, that is the view that most Americans today have. Um, it's supported by both political parties. In fact, that opinion dropped during the Obama-McCain campaign. And by the end of the day, both of them had put out statements saying they supported the individual rights interpretation. So in a way, it kind of coheres with what most people today think the Second Amendment means. But it was a big, big change in constitutional law. Because for more than two centuries, there's not a single federal case anywhere in the United States striking down a gun law on Second Amendment grounds. And that's mostly because courts were interpreting it as being limited to militia and gun regulations like a prohibition on you know, gun possession by domestic abusers or whatever doesn't have anything to do with the well-regulated militia, therefore it doesn't even track for the sort of Second Amendment. So that was the, that was the, that was the big, big moment. That's where the sort of modern Second Amendment, I guess, um, uh, emerged from. And then after two years later, we got a case called McDonald, which you mentioned. What McDonald did that was real important is say the Second Amendment binds state and local governments as well as the federal government. Heller, because it was about the District of Columbia, all it said was that the federal government has to respect the Second Amendment. McDonald comes along and says, yeah, the same is true for state and local governments. That's really important because most gun regulation still today, and, and we can talk about the federal law you mentioned, but still most gun regulation is, is a matter of state law. So McDonald practically was real, real important. And then, you know, the third in the series, I guess, is, is Bruin, um, which we're still sort of processing. And, and, and maybe Andrew can say a little bit about what the immediately seems significant about Bruin, although, again, it'll take a little while to figure it out. Well, right. Yeah, you know, before before you go there, though, let, me, let me just because uh, Joe, you you mentioned the distinction between the Second Amendment and state law, uh, and uh, in North Carolina, there is a separate constitutional right uh, to uh, bear arms. Uh, can you talk about uh, what the scope is or difference between the state manifestation? of uh, the uh, right to, uh, uh, to own and possess uh, guns and the federal uh, right. And if there is a difference, is it one without a distinction? This is a, a fascinating question that I think has been overlooked in the gun debate for a very long time. So what I said about Heller is, you know, in 2000, before 2008, there was no federal Supreme Court holding that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to keep and bear arms for private purposes. But there actually were constitutional rights to have guns for private purposes, including self-defense. They were state constitutional law guarantees. And this is just a, an interesting and important thing to know about constitutional law is you really get two bites at the apple if you're making a constitutional claim. You might have that the right under the federal constitution, but if you don't, you might still have it under the state constitution. And most state constitutions, even before Heller, did guarantee an individual right to keep and bear arms, including North Carolina. In fact, almost all states did. So the right already existed. It just didn't exist under the Second Amendment. It existed under state constitutional law throughout the country. And, and this is where I think is, is, is really, really interesting. What that means is that we actually did have a lot of law emerging at the state level testing well how what regulations are permissible under state constitutional law and what the state courts did was they agreed on a test and the test was reasonableness 
gun regulation is okay under the state constitutional guarantees if it's reasonable. Now that's a pretty forgiving test. I mean, that allow that could potentially allow a lot of gun regulation and in practice it did. But when Heller transformed the second amendment, you could imagine that maybe the federal courts would say, okay, look, we've got this brand new second amendment, right? We've never had to deal with adjudication of what kind of constitutional, uh, what kinds of regulations are you know, okay along with this right. We could take a lesson from the states, see what North Carolina and 45 other states have done and borrow their test. And they did not do that. They, they were like, just basically ignored all that existing state constitutional law. Now that Heller has happened, and now especially that Bruin has happened and made the right, it seems like even stronger, I think almost all that state constitutional law is just gonna fall into the background and people are gonna raise the second amendment claim first because it's probably the easier one to win. And I don't think we're gonna see as much development at the state level, which I think is too bad because states have different needs when it comes to gun rights and regulation. And that goes to, so Andrew, um, so Joseph kind of teed you up and, and as you talk about uh, the Bruin case and the need for the Bruin case, one of the things that Joseph mentioned was with Heller, this was a big change in constitutional law. And the, you know, one of the issues is, of course, even though there was this big change from a constitutional jurisprudence standpoint, was there a practical impact on how federal courts were adjudicating claims or you know, gun regulation? So as you talk about the Bruin case, can you explain um, the significance of the Supreme Court needing to weigh in again, not just with respect to can you possess guns you know, outside of the home, but also kind of the test that Joseph was talking about. Right, absolutely. Um, and, and first I'll just say that um, while there, there was about a decade where we didn't hear from the Supreme Court on the Second Amendment, that didn't mean that, you know, lower federal courts were not tr wrestling with these issues and trying to sort of figure out what the Supreme Court meant in Heller and McDonald and how to um, apply those tests to you know, real life Second Amendment challenges. So um, there was an approach that the uh, lower federal courts coalesced around. And one of the big practical takeaways from Bruin, which I'll get into in a second, is that that test uh, was was held not to be valid. So the, the Supreme Court said that, that that's not the way that courts should be evaluating Second Amendment challenges. Um, but just to sort of tee us up uh, at a high level, um, the Supreme Court in Bruin strikes down a New York law that imposed strict requirements on who was allowed to carry a handgun in public. Um, so in New York, in order to obtain a permit to carry a concealed handgun in public, uh, residents were required both to meet certain objective criteria, uh, right? So for example, you know, you, you couldn't have a prior felony conviction, you have to be a certain minimum age, um, and also to demonstrate what's called proper cause. Um, and that that demonstration of proper cause would be made to a local licensing officer, for example, uh, a, a state judge in, in, in this instance. Um, and New York state courts had construed the words proper cause to require something other than a general need for protection or self-defense. So uh, you needed to show an extraordinary or special need. You needed to show, for example, that you know, somebody had threatened you, and that's the reason that you are specifically concerned for your safety and you want to carry a gun. 
Um, in other words, it's not enough to simply say, I live in a high crime area, I have to walk through a high crime area to get home, something like that. That would be considered a generalized need that you know most people in the community could have, and that would not be enough in New York to obtain a permit um, to concealed carry. And um, the Supreme Court in Bruin, uh, you know, first decides this question of, you know, does the Second Amendment extend outside the home, right? Because we, as we talked about, Heller and McDonald both deal with laws that restrict gun possession within the home. The thrust of those holdings was that, you know, the home is sort of the crucial place for self-defense, and that's where the Second Amendment applies most strongly. Um, and in Bruin, the court first says um, that that's not the only place the Second Amendment applies. Um, there's also a need for self-defense outside the home. Um, in fact, many people uh, are more likely to encounter danger outside the home. And so um, the Second Amendment does protect the right to publicly carry uh, a, a gun for self-defense in certain circumstances. Um, and then the really, I, I think what we'll spend most time, most of our time today talking about is the, uh, the second part of the court's holding, which is that, you know, rather than consider whether New York's permitting system was appropriately tailored or uh, sub substantially related to an objective of preventing gun violence in urban areas, um, which is what the state what the state had argued the court should consider. Um, the court instead says we need to look to history, right? We need to look uh, to whether the regulation at issue is consistent with the American historical tradition of firearms regulation. Um, and if New York can't come forward with historical analogs that impose similar burdens uh, on, on the right of a law-abiding citizen to carry a gun outside the home, then the law has to fall. And that's what the court ultimately held. Okay. All right. This is the uh, Legal Legal Review. And uh, we're talking about the uh, recent uh, decision by the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in uh, the Braun uh, case uh, where they uh, expanded uh, in New York, the uh, notion of uh, possession of, uh, of a firearm. We're talking with uh, two experts uh, in that uh, area, Joseph Blocker and Andrew Willinger, both from uh, Duke University at the Center for Firearm Law. And uh, they are doing a deep dive in understanding and helping us to uh, decipher exactly what these uh, rights are with respect to uh, guns within our society. We are going to take our break right now. I want you to stay with us and we will be right back to continue uh, this, uh, this discussion. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCC Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center. 
Made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue our discussion about the uh, Second Amendment. Our most recent decision from the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, which uh, expands uh, in New York State uh, the uh, right of people to uh, possess and carry uh, a gun, firearm, in that, uh, in that uh, jurisdiction. Uh, as, as, as Joseph mentioned earlier, there is, uh, uh, in most state constitutions, the uh, right to carry guns. And uh, indeed, here in North Carolina, there is that right uh, to, uh, to carry a gun. And people are well aware of that, as uh, those of you who are traveling on the highways and byways often can see with people having gun racks and uh, some even carrying guns on their, uh, on their hips. Uh, so it's not a surprise uh, to uh, to many people that uh, you know people have guns and can carry them uh, openly. That is not the situation in New York, which is uh, significantly different. Nor is it the situation in uh, in D.C. or was the situation in D.C. in Chicago, uh, where uh, the uh, McDonald uh, case uh, came from. So uh, why did it take us? so long from the Heller decision in 2008 until now uh, for the uh, U.S. Supreme Court to, to address this issue from the perspective of the uh, Second Amendment or the federal constitution. I think there's, there's really at least two factors at play here. One is the changing makeup of the court itself. So when, when the court decided Heller, it was a bare majority, five to four, and we've learned since then that it was it was, it was a little skin of the teeth to get Justice Kennedy to join that majority, and he was necessary to get it to five. So it was, it was, it was kind of a close call, uh, I think, at the time. Now, the court has had a lot of turnover since then, and it has become, by any measure, much more conservative and much more open, I think, to broad gun rights claims. And it may have just taken a while to kind of get to a majority. Uh, you know, when the, when the justices decide which cases to grant, it only takes four of the nine to grant a case, but you're probably not gonna vote to grant a case unless you could count to five in terms of getting the result you want. And that might've just taken a while. So I, I think you know, part of this really had to do with the changing, the changing personnel. And we see the same thing in, in, in other, other areas of law. I mean, whether it's you know, abortion, free speech, um, you know, voting rights, like there's lots gonna be a lot of changes, I think just given the, the lineup. Um, I mean, I should say that during that time, there were a lot of, opinions issued, not precedential opinions, but opinions issued by justices, including Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, Justice Scalia, when he was still on the court, um, complaining about the court not granting 
cases and asserting that uh, this is Justice Thomas's phrase that the Second Amendment was being treated as a constitutional orphan, or it was being treated as a second class right. So there was like a, a tension sort of building here. But I think part of the thing, uh, part of the explanation here is the second factor, I would say, the changing personnel of the court is one. The other is the changing landscape of gun laws in the United States. So Heller and McDonald both involved citywide prohibitions on the private possession of handguns. They're the only two cities in the country that had laws like that. They were the most stringent, extreme laws you could, you could find, right? So when they got struck down, it didn't necessarily mean anything for prohibitions on high capacity magazines or possession by you know, people convicted of certain violent crimes. That just wasn't called into question. And at the same time that all this activities happening in the Second Amendment, you're also seeing a whole lot of deregulation of guns at the state level just through legislative choices. So like Irv, you mentioned about the, the difference between New York and a lot of other states now with regard to you know, public carrying of guns. And that's right. And the court actually makes a lot out of that in its opinion in Bruin to say, look, there's only, it's, it's basically New York and six other states that have this kind of probable, uh, sorry, a proper cause or good cause requirement to carry a handgun concealed in public. That's true today. But if you go back to even just 1987, most states had that rule, 26 states, and then another 16 states totally prohibit concealed carry of handguns, right? And those laws have all been, you know, or a lot of them, all but seven, taken off the books or watered down over time so that New York kind of looks like an outlier. But that kind of also means there's not as many stringent gun laws out there for lawyers to challenge. Like, there's nothing as easy as the target was in, D in, in D.C. versus Heller or in McDonald versus City of Chicago, because there's just not that much stringent gun regulation. And the Supreme Court specifically said it's fine to prohibit gun possession by people convicted of felonies, people who've been adjudicated mentally ill, et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of makes up most of American gun law. So partly this is just like it has not been a target rich environment, uh, to, use a, to use a gun metaphor there. Right. Andrew, you, you, you were talking earlier uh, about the, uh, the, the, the claim going before the court having to do with the ability of a person to present a proper purpose uh, to be able to be licensed in, uh, uh, in New York to uh, carry a gun, uh, as opposed to the decision which came out uh, in Bruin uh, dealing with the overall right to uh, carry uh, and own uh, what's, what's the differences between the, uh, the claim that, uh, that was presented initially and the decision uh, that was rendered by uh, Justice Thomas in, uh, in Bruin? Yeah, certainly. Um, so I think that, you know, it's the, the, the least surprising aspect of the Bruin decision, um, something that I think most legal scholars expected uh, the court would do was that it struck down the New York law, right? So that it, it held that this level of discretion um, where a licensing officer was required to assess whether somebody had proper cause to carry a gun um, was too much, right? Rather, the state uh, needs to implement a permitting system that's based only on objective criteria, which is known as a shall issue re regime. Um, so that's, that's kind of the narrow, um, uh, holding that I don't think uh, is surprising. The more unexpected uh, aspect of the court's decision is the sort of laser focus on history in evaluating 
what regulations are permissible and what regulations are not. Um, and I think that's, um, you know, going back to what Joseph said earlier about the changing makeup of the court, you know, this is an aspect of an originalist interpretation of the constitution. Um, and Bruin really takes that, uh, I think, a step further than we've seen where they're now, uh, the, the court is now saying that the only way to justify uh, gun regulations is to find analogs in history, right? Because those analogs would shed light on what the uh, what the the framers of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights uh, actually understood the words to mean uh, at the time and immediately after. So that's really the sort of uh, the seismic shift that we see with Bruin, which raises the question of, you know, things change. And so there were weapons that didn't exist at the time that the Second Amendment was enacted. Um, that, you know, so much in our society has changed. So, you know, like if we think about the types of weapons, so assault weapons, and there are many other types, how, how do we square the court's um, basically new test with the changing realities of society. So you're not always gonna be able to find an analog because there are things that didn't exist at the time. There are ways our communities um, are comprised that didn't exist at the time. How do we square that? I think this is the central question going forward and it's gonna keep people like me and Andrew and Daryl who work in this area really, really busy. Um, so a few quick thoughts um, in response, but it's, I think, again, this is a question that's gonna take years to resolve. But, but one thing just to emphasize is there is a lot of historical gun regulation out there. And so if a person looks back at the historical record, uh, they can find plenty of examples of specifically weapons directed regulation. And um, we, you know, we here at the center, Firearms Law hosts a free um, uh, online resource, which Andrew mentioned earlier, called the Repository of Historical Gun Laws. It's got 1,600 historical gun laws, and, and we stopped at 1934. We could have kept going, um, but there's a lot of stuff out there. The really hard thing, and this is what you, you put your finger on there, April, is like, how do you compare a gun law, like say a medieval gun law from England, our common law heritage, which prohibits dangerous weapons in fairs and markets, to a current prohibition on guns, let's say at a football stadium or on the subway, right? That 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 is where my brain just breaks. I, I honestly I don't know how judges are going to do this. Um, I don't think they're going to strike down all these modern forms of gun laws that didn't exist in 1791. But I think in order to uphold them, they're going to have to do some serious gymnastics. So so just one, I mean, a few examples on this. You mentioned the changing, you know, the changes in uh, uh, in guns over time. It's extraordinary. Um, maybe some listeners here have had the opportunity to fire an antique weapon. I've, I have, I fired an, a black powder musket. It took somebody else helping me to load it a minute to get it ready. And it still misfired two out of three times. I've also fired an AR-15. And I'll tell you, I would take that over a whole group of people armed with a black powder musket. Like, I don't even know how you compare these two things across time. Or think about, you know, current federal rules make it illegal to carry an, to carry a loaded weapon on an airplane, right? What did James Madison think about that in 1791? I mean, nothing. He was a smart guy, but they didn't know about airplanes, right? I mean, you could go down the list where, the, you know, prohibition, the federal law prohibits people who've been convicted of domestic violence crimes from carrying guns. In 1791, they didn't prosecute domestic violence as a crime, right? You know, what's the analogy going to be? Or daycare centers, schools, you can go down the list, right? Here's what I expect will happen. I don't think all those laws are going to get struck down. I 
think what judges will do and, and should do is find a historical principle that connects the old stuff to the new stuff. So Amy Coney Barrett, now a justice on the Supreme Court, was previously a judge on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers Illinois and some other sort of Midwestern, uh, upper Midwestern states. And she wrote an opinion saying, history and common sense are in accord. The framing generation disarmed groups they thought were dangerous, right? And the groups that we today think are dangerous are different, right? Maybe they didn't think domestic abusers were dangerous. Today we do, right? They didn't have a sense of, you know, mental illness and gun violence that today we do. And so the groups that you apply that principle to has changed, but the basic principle should be enough to uphold a lot of these modern gun laws. I think that's right. That should be enough to uphold those laws. But I also think it's, it's just kind of a crazy way to do constitutional law. Like, I think we should have kept our focus on what laws work. Uh, and that's what the test was, as Andrew says, that the court on Thursday purported at least to throw out the window. Well, you know, we, we started out with this notion of uh, the, the right to uh, own and uh, uh, possess uh, a, a weapon. Uh, then we kind of switched into regulation. Uh, and there has always been regulation uh, on, the, uh, on the use of guns. Initially, technology was the regulation uh, because you talked about the musket. Uh, and uh, the ability to uh, take five minutes to uh, load it up and then uh, 13 minutes to get up after you had to, uh, to fire it. Uh, and now the technology is such that now people are complaining about the uh, semi-automatic and automatic weapon. So where is the court drawing the line on the ability to regulate, which is what I think that New York was attempting uh, to do, uh, where, where, where's the line that's being drawn with respect to uh, regulation? Because there's one thing between a six-shooter six uh, that you carry on your uh, hip, uh, automatic weapon, or uh, using a, a, a drone uh, to uh, fire uh, a, a weapon, so, or having a cannon in your front yard. So, you know, where do we go? I, I think y'all are going to have to have us back on in 10 years uh, to, <laughs> to unpack that one, or because it is a that is going to be the central question. And I don't think that the court in Bruin actually gave us a whole lot of guidance on the answer to that, other than to say, as Andrew pointed out, you know, that you're going to find your answers in history. So, so Justice Thomas does go on to say, look, if you look at the historical regulations, you can evaluate why and how they burden people's ability to have, right, have, have, a, have a weapon for self-defense, right? And then you take that and you use, you compare to what the modern regulations are, are doing, right? So maybe you could say, look, a prohibition on, you know, say handgun possession in the home, that's a big, big burden on the person's right to self-defense. That was, would not have been permissible in 1791. It's also not permissible now. But maybe if the restriction is, look, you can't take your cannon down to the, you know, the market or whatever, that's the modern comparison of you can't take your, you know, automatic weapon down to the mall today, whatever, like that, that's kind of how those questions are going to get answered. I think the trickiest thing about it is how unpredictable it is, uh, which is really tough to know. I mean, one thing you said that I just want to underline, Irv, is that rights and regulation have always coexisted in this space. And that's true for any constitutional right, but it's certainly true for guns. And sometimes people think about this as if it's rights versus regulation. It's clearly both and always regulated guns in this country and before. And in some ways, 
historically, we regulated them more stringently than we do today. Um, but it's clearly clear that this right is not absolute. No rights are absolute. And the hard questions are exactly as you say, like, well, how do we know about a modern form of gun? You know, what about bump stocks? What about, you know, what like accoutrements and like, you know, additions to your guns that can make them more powerful or convert a semi-automatic to an automatic? What can we do about regulating those? It's hard for me to see how we're going to find good answers in history, but that'll be the challenge going forward. I think it raises the other issue, which is not all communities look the same. And so when you have, you know, a single focus, which is, do you find an analog in history? One, it makes judges, you know, become, have to become historians. And two, it doesn't allow for the recognition of what may be appropriate in one place that is not necessarily appropriate in the other. So we've kind of the court has kind of thrown out a test that allows for balancing and consideration of circumstances in determining whether regulation is appropriate to kind of a blanket test that, you know, forces judges to operate outside of their, their scope, right? That they, they are not necessarily historians. And I feel comfortable in saying that I'm sure the vast majority of them um, are not second amendment experts as the, you know, the two of you are. Um, we're going to have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll explore that a little bit and Andrew, get your thoughts on, you know, kind of the, the, um, the situation that now the federal judges kind of find themselves in and having to potentially be historians and making the decisions about whether these regulations are permissible or not. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the recent Supreme Court decision, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, where the Supreme Court has reached a decision that there is a Second Amendment right to carry a gun outside of the home for self-defense. We have joining us here in our Zoom studio, Joseph Bloker. The Lanity L. Smith Professor of Law at Duke University School of Law, and also the faculty co-director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. And we also have with us Andrew Willinger, who is the new executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. We're going to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently A2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your community spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back 
Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with two Second Amendment experts as we delve into the Supreme Court's recent decision, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin. So we have with us here in our Zoom studio, Joseph Bloker, who is the co-faculty director of the Duke Center of Firearms Law, and Andrew Willinger, who is the new executive director of the center. So Andrew, right before the break, we were talking about the new test that the Supreme Court has um, provided for federal judges to apply when determining whether regulation of uh, gun possession is permissible or not under the Second Amendment. And, and what it requires, as you've already kind of indicated, is that the court look at whether there is a historical analog to the legislation that is being, or the regulation that is being um, reviewed. Can you talk a little bit more about how judges are um, going to actually manage this, like to look at history and make these determinations? Sure. Um, and this, yeah, this is one of the, the really fundamental questions coming out of Bruin. And a lot of this will, will be playing out in the, in the coming months and years as we see lower courts start to, start to grapple with the test that the Supreme Court announced. But I think, you know, it, it, it might be worth just highlighting that there is a dissent to the court's opinion in Bruin by Justice Breyer. And Justice Breyer uh, really gives this issue a lot of focus, right? He says that it's not really appropriate to have a standard that focuses on historical analogs because judges are not historians um, and courts won't have the resources of having you know, historians on staff to comb through um, historical laws and try to figure out which ones are analogous, why these laws were enacted in the uh, 18th century, uh, 19th century. And so it, that, that you know, Justice Breyer says that for, that, for, for those reasons, the test might prove to be unworkable. Um, I think as far as uh, what lower court judges can do to actually try to be faithful to Bruin, um, you know, first, uh, one thing that, that the court's opinion suggests is, well, you know, we have an adversarial legal system, right? So you rely on the party's presentation of the evidence, right? Um, and just to, to take Bruin as an example, uh, New York would have the burden of showing which regulations are analogous, right? So the court would only need to consider the regulations that the state puts forward and decide whether they are or are not analogous. Um, unclear what, you know, to what extent that really works in practice. Um, and, you know, one thing that I think we'll probably see is that it'll be very difficult at the lower levels of the federal court system for judges to really do any independent analysis of history. Um, as we get to the Supreme Court, of course, you have, you know, historians filing amicus briefs and you have a lot more resources to really comb through the record. But this will certainly be a real challenge and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. One thing you raised right before the, the break, April, is the possibility of variation in the historical record. And I think this is a really, really important theme here because, you know, history is not one thing. It's not uniform, uh, you know, between groups, between places and gun regulation. The history of gun regulation shows that, I think, in a couple different ways. You know, it really raises the question of, like, not just how are you going to process the history, but whose history are you reading, right? It's not everybody whose voices are reflected in the historical record. It's a certain elite, mostly group of people whose voices 
that the courts are going to be looking to, and that might not represent the overall views of you know sort of the broader broader community. The other thing is that there was regional variation in firearms regulation from the get go. Uh, that's 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 regional in the sense that the South had very different regulations than the North. Uh, in fact, it was the South that led the led the um, uh, prohibitions on concealed carry because concealed carry was thought to be the kind of assassin's mode for carrying a gun, and that the quote unquote manly way to carry your gun would be open. So actually the, the South was way more prohibitionist on concealed carry than the North was, which is interesting, I think, because today we don't necessarily think about the South having a more stringent gun regulation. But the point is there were two different traditions and I, I don't know how you average those together. I mean, it's just, it's tricky. It's like picking, picking winners. And the other thing, a tradition that has, has been at least fundamental to the way we regulate guns in this country is the difference between urban and rural areas. If you go back even centuries, you go back before the founding of this country, you find much more regulation in dense urban areas. I think for obvious reasons, this is much more likely that people can be harmed. Um, this is where still today, uh, gun crime is concentrated and there's not the same opportunities for recreation, hunting, you know, et cetera, when you're in an urban area than when you're in a rural area. At oral argument in Bruin, Justice Thomas, uh, among others, seemed open to that, you know, and recognized, look, the guns play a different role in Manhattan than they do in upstate New York, where the petitioners in this case came from. And there's nothing in the Constitution that says you have to have the same regime in the, you know, in on on Fifth Avenue in, in Manhattan that you do when you're up, uh, you know, in, in upstate New York outside, I think Albany, where these guys are from. It's just very, very different places. But then in the opinion, none of that seems to come through. It just seems to be like, there's one right, it applies the same everywhere. And it just kind of flattens what I think are, ironically, historical differences between urban and rural, and, and rural areas. Well, you know, one of the concerns that's raised in places like Durham, Raleigh, Greensboro and other uh, cities now that are experiencing an upsurge in uh, gun violence, uh, where there are in this uh, country more guns uh, than there are people, uh, and uh, that uh, there is a kind of uh, feeling that the, the law has made us more vulnerable to gun violence than ever uh, before. How does the legislature and the courts speak to efforts to curtail this gun violence as we are giving what seemingly is a carte blanche uh, uh, freedom to people to go out and purchase more and more uh, guns? Uh, where, you know, particularly here, uh, where uh, the what the average is that every person in the United States has at least five guns. Although we know that's not really true, uh, but that is what the uh, statistics would seem to suggest. Well, on that point about statistics, it's a really interesting thing. It, it it's not the it, yeah. It, it doesn't work out that everybody's got five guns, but of people who have guns, the average is something like five to seven. I mean, this is what's really interesting is that there are more guns probably in the United States than there are people. There's not a census for guns, so we don't know for sure. But the percentage of people who own guns actually keeps going down. Uh, so only a minority of, 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 of Americans own guns or even live in a house where some, somebody owns a gun. But the number of guns in circulation keeps going up. So in other words, gun ownership is getting concentrated into a, into a smaller, uh, smaller concentration of people. 
And to the degree that folks see, look out in the world and see that, you know, gun violence is an increasing problem, the, the data actually do back that up. Um, the, 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 the CDC, the federal CDC, Center for Disease Control, just released a couple months ago its most recent data on gun violence and had the highest rate ever of gun deaths uh, that's ever recorded since it started keeping numbers in 1968. About 45,000 people, I think, died from gunshots. Now, the majority of those we should emphasize are deaths by suicide. That's actually the majority of gun deaths are self-inflicted, but the biggest jump was in the gun homicides. And those are those are concentrated in, in particular communities, in particular places. Um, I should say young black men make up about 2% of the American population, about 38% of gun homicide deaths. It's just overwhelmingly concentrated in certain uh, in certain communities, especially in, in, in urban areas. Now, you raise a question, well, what can states and localities do to sort of stem that violence? I think there's a huge toolkit available here, and some states are using it more than others. Um, one thing we've seen recently is a real uh, uptick in states adopting what are often called red flag laws, um, technically extreme risk protection orders or extreme risk laws. But what these do is allow a judge to issue an order that guns be temporarily taken away from a person who presents an immediate risk of harm to themselves or others. So a person who's threatening suicide or who's threatening someone else, for example, this mechanism allows the guns to be taken away from that person till they could get help. Maybe they're just going through a real dark patch, depression, substance abuse, something like that. Not safe for a gun to be in that person's possession. That's one thing. And, and, and you know, there's about 20 states have those now. Almost all of them have adopted in the last five years. So it's a real, real uptick. I think there's also a lot more um, focus on what's sometimes called community violence intervention, which is not necessarily, you know, police arresting people and prosecutors prosecuting them. It's not criminal law in that traditional sense. It's more putting people in the community in a place to stop the shootings before they happen, right? You know, to talk people down um, to you know deal with sort of like you know anger management impulsivity like things that can lead to gun homicide so there's a lot of stuff we can still do and if it makes even a 10 percent difference i mean that's thousands of lives every year uh so i think there's still a lot a lot going forward we can do as, as hard as it is right now yeah which um leads us nicely into what the federal government can do more and better to make sure that there are regulations in place to protect society, especially when we're seeing an increase in, you know, mass killings by the use of, you know, these automatic weapons. Can you talk about the recent federal legislation? Um, what is it and what can we expect from that? Yeah, you, you mentioned this at the outset, April, and it is worth just kind of doubling down on that. It is extraordinary that we've seen within literally hours of the Supreme Court's decision the Senate passing what has now become the first major federal gun regulatory legislation in, in almost 30 years. I mean, it, it, it all happened in a matter of days. It's just such a such a whiplash. It kind of goes back to Herb's point about rights and regulation co coexisting. Um, so what we're seeing in this um, in this law called the, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act is a couple different things. Um, which, which is what we should expect to see. You know, gun regulation is a whole suite of possible, uh, possible uh, options to reduce gun deaths, and Congress has taken advantage of that. It doesn't create a whole lot more sort of federal criminal legislation. This is not like you know criminalizing new groups or new categories of guns or anything like that. There's some extension of um, <clears throat> or sort of closing of what's been often been called the boyfriend loophole, um, which is to say that some people who are subject to domestic violence restraining orders 
actually can still possess guns if they are quote unquote boyfriends of uh, of the of the people that um, uh, who who sought the orders. That's been closed. That's a big thing. I think the biggest thing though is or two things I guess in the federal legislation. One is uh, funding for the community violence intervention programs that I was talking about a minute ago. Um, I think those have proven really promising, especially because they avoid worsening another problem we have in this country, which is too many people being locked up. Um, if we can if we can reduce gun violence without increasing the sort of carcerization of certain certain groups, then all to the good. Uh, and CVI programs, community violence intervention, hopefully can do that. The other is providing increased financial incentives for states that have either adopted or are seeking to you know, better utilize their red flag laws. Um, and that costs money. And the federal government here has provided uh, an incentive or frankly a reward for states that, that, that choose to do that. It's not creating a federal red flag law, just providing support for the states that wanna do it. And I think that could be really big. Um, what's missing or what we didn't get um, uh, is also worth noting. Um, there's, no, uh, there's no expansion here of the federal background check system which is something that was on the agenda in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook massacre 10 years ago. Um, and and just, to, just to say quickly, the current system requires only federally licensed dealers to perform background checks. So if you buy your gun from a person who's not a licensed dealer, you don't have to go through a background check. And that means that people who have a disqualifying felony or who are fugitives from justice or who committed domestic violence crimes can buy guns legally, I mean, in, in the sense that they don't have to actually have the background check. Um, and that's potentially a really big loophole. It's hard to know how big it is because again, those aren't tracked transactions, but it, it could be huge. So expanding the background check system is overwhelmingly popular uh, across the United States. It's not a partisan issue. Depending on the poll, you see 80 or 90% of people support this, including the vast majority of gun owners and NRA members. But uh, Congress just couldn't come together on it yet again. So I think there's still some room for growth there, but the fact that we see anything coming through uh, is big news. And maybe this will be the first of hopefully many steps towards a more reasonable balance of, of gun rights and regulation. Well, if, 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 there, if there are problems with respect to regulating uh, the people, uh, what does that mean with respect to regulating the manufacturers and sellers of guns? Uh, is that a more viable option uh, that, uh, that we have uh, than the regulation of people's rights? And Andrew, you had kind of, you know, going back to your New York uh, conversation, uh, can respond to this. Um, sure. Uh, yeah, so I, so I think that, you know, regulating uh, manufacturers and sellers is something that the court sort of leaves open to some extent. Um, there are, you know, concurring opinions that make reference to the fact that, you know, the court isn't um, saying that laws restricting the commercial sale of firearms um, are unconstitutional. Um, under Heller and McDonald, those laws still seem to be presumptively uh, valid. Um, but, you know, I, I would say that you kind of run into some of the same historical problems when you start to consider um, laws on uh, mm -hmm. laws that that regulate manufacturers and 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 dealers because these are laws that for the most part are are recent in origin and wouldn't necessarily have um, you know exact historical twins and so the question will just be <laughs> how can you reason by analogy to what exists in the historical tradition and so 
you know, w one question um, that I have that I'd like to get your um, take on is with this decision by the Supreme Court that allows individuals to um, or expresses that there is a Second Amendment right for individuals to be able to possess guns outside of the home. Are we going to see an increase in gun purchases, even if we are talking about, you know, like a smaller um, community of folks that that do possess guns? And if the issues that we're seeing, even when we're talking about federal funding that will help potentially reduce gun violence, these red flag laws, are we still looking at a situation where um, the, the, are we still looking at a situation where we will see more and more guns in the community such that we'll see increased gun violence? I think it's certain that we're going to see more guns in more public places. I mean, it's almost just an inevitable outcome of this decision. Um, if you loosen the permitting requirements for carrying guns in public, it's just it's letting more people through. Now, the degree to which that causes problems, the degree to which that increases gun violence is a deeply contested proposition. Some people say more guns is less crime because, you know, criminals or would-be criminals get scared off if they think that more people are armed. And there's, you know, some studies suggest that. There's a lot more studies, I think, that suggest the opposite, that more guns in more public places probably increases crime. Um, and there's some great work, including done by our colleague here at Duke, Phil Cook, to the effect that when states loosen their permitting requirements, certain kinds of violent crime increase, especially homicides. And so we might see an increase. Now it's complicated, of course, what causes crime. There's lots of different background factors here, um, but certainly the presence of a gun in many, many circumstances can convert an assault into a murder. And that's really the danger. Uh, and so that's that's what I think we'll be keeping an eye on. I think states will respond with lots of different kinds of regulations. Maybe they'll prohibit guns in particular places like bars, restaurants, subway, you know, a lot more locational restrictions. And then when we're back on this podcast in a couple of years, we'll see how that all uh, played out. Well, all right. Well, we're going to have you back. We're yeah, we're not going to wait a you know couple of years. Hopefully, you know maybe a couple months, and we can see how things are. Hopefully, um, we will see um, a decrease in gun violence because it is such a tragic occurrence that we're getting all too comfortable with. Um, but unfortunately, we are out of time, and so we'd like to thank our guests, Joseph Bloker, the Lanity L. Smith Professor of Law at Duke University School of Law, and also the faculty co-director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law, and Andrew Willinger, who is the new executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. Thank you both for spending your time with us this evening. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your time with us as well. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.